0: We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives, but can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon.
1: Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Regular listeners will recall that we are working through a couple of different series of episodes at the moment, one on the importance of play and the other on storytelling. On the storytelling front, we started by talking with Dr. Dina Weisberg of the University of Pennsylvania about what children learn from fictional stories. And then we learned about the positive impacts that storytelling can have on children's academic outcomes. And by storytelling, I mean stories that are learned and told rather than read. Today, we're going to talk about a concept that Dr. Laura Froyan, who's been on the show a couple of times, introduced me to, and that's the idea of family stories. These are stories told within families about some or all of the family members' experiences, some of which may be told so often that they become known as family legacies. I was particularly interested in this idea because Laura had mentioned to me that family storytelling can have really beneficial impacts on family cohesion, so I wanted to learn more about it. We'll follow up this episode with the last in our series on storytelling in a couple of weeks where I plan to learn a story and then tell it to my daughter while you listen in. So different researchers have different ideas about the primary functions of family stories. Walter Fisher, a professor emeritus at the University of Southern California, theorized that narration can be divided into two types, recounting or accounting for. Recounting narratives include history, biography, and autobiography, things like how the parents met or the birth of a child. Accounting for narratives attempt to explain or account for a family member's personality traits or behavior. A story can also function in both ways. For example, when a mother tells a child the story of his birth, you were born early in the morning at about 6am, you must have liked that because ever since then you've always been my early bird, always getting up with the sun. One doctoral student described the main functions of family storytelling in her thesis as being firstly to know who we are and what we value, secondly to maintain us as a family, thirdly to laugh, and fourthly to remember the past. Elizabeth Stone, in a fabulous book on family storytelling called Black Sheep and Kissing Cousins, said the functions of family stories are firstly to persuade family members they are special, secondly to teach about the ways of the world and the family's methods of coping with troubles and successes. And thirdly, helping a person to know his or her own identity. Undoubtedly, family stories are strategies of family cultural maintenance and also socialization tools. They help parents to share family values and lessons in growing up. Some of the themes related to socialization that researchers have observed in family stories include health behaviors like smoking marijuana and eating habits, values, gender expectations, and family and romantic relationship expectations. And it's not just that family stories are told by the parents for the benefit of the child, but rather that expressiveness among family members is positively associated with family strength. Six qualities are used to define family strength, a commitment to the family and well-being of each family member, positive communication and an ability to resolve conflict constructively, regular expressions of affection among family members, a tendency to enjoy quality time together, a spiritual sense of well-being, however you define that, I suppose, and an ability to effectively manage stress and unexpected crises. This specific study didn't explore this particular factor, but it seems possible to me that family expressiveness through stories and other means is a key input for family strength, which increases expressiveness in a self-fulfilling loop. The study did find that family expressiveness and structural traditionalism, which is an approach to parenting where the parent's word is seen as final and children don't get much of a chance to express their own ideas, accounted for 43% of the variance in family strength among the 426 young adults they studied, which is a pretty impressive amount for just two variables. There are so many factors impacting a family, I'm surprised to see an effect size of more than 10% for any single variable. Most researchers focus on the significance of the stories to the child and the family unit, but a few look at the importance on the parents as well. Becoming a parent may help an adult to make sense of experiences they had as a child, and family stories may help to integrate the adult's own experiences as a young child as the parent continues to construct his or her own life story. Over time, the role of family stories shifts as the parent starts to tell more stories for the child's benefit about achievement and striving for success in an attempt to inculcate these values to the child. Mothers tend to tell stories with stronger themes of affiliation than fathers, and affiliation themes are also more common with younger children than with preschoolers. People in different cultures tell family stories in different ways. American families tend to ask the children about their day over the dinner table so the child becomes a primary narrator. Israelis are more likely to have equal narrative participation between children and adults, and children participate as co narrators in storytelling. Americans' family stories are often about individual experiences that are then shared with the family, whereas Israeli families tend to tell stories that the family collectively experienced. Dr. Karma Byland of the University of Iowa conducted one admittedly very small study of the family members in three different American families, found that the American family stories were particularly celebratory in nature, without an evident theme of hardship or trial that were present in both a recently immigrated and also a fully assimilated Mexican-American family. Dr. Byland unfortunately didn't record the children's responses to these stories, though, and I was left wondering how the children perceived these stories of hardship, My husband was born in New Jersey to Filipino parents, so I asked him what stories he recalled his parents telling. He immediately, too, recalled the theme of hardship and the idea that he should be grateful that his parents had emigrated for his benefit. I asked him how these stories made him feel, and he said that he pretty much brushed them off and didn't pay too much attention. Uh, Whatever, mom, kind of thing. This made me wonder whether the blunt instruments that parents may instinctively use are the best ones for the job, since in my sample size of one husband, (laughs) my broader intuition, these stories may not by themselves be suited to making children really appreciate the advantages they have, which seems to be the parent's goal. As we discussed in the last episode on the benefits of storytelling, it's possible that a less direct approach where the children get to discuss a story with an ambiguous moral in a way that doesn't have a predetermined conclusion, rather than being beaten over the head with the idea the parents want them to remember, might be a more effective way of getting an idea across. At this point, I want to take a bit of a detour to mention a new commitment that I make to you, my listeners. I've always aimed to be inclusive of all types of parents and parenting styles on the show, primarily by calling out the limitations of the scientific research I study, which is primarily conducted on white people and specifically white college students. And then the results are extrapolated as if they're applicable to all of mankind. I've been thinking a lot about the episode I did on why we shouldn't ban war play. And while I think my guest made a convincing case for the developmental reasons why banning war play is a bad idea, I do think that I didn't do a great job of addressing the topic of whether children of non-dominant cultures should engage in war play. And this is because it might not be safe for them to engage in this type of play when it could be misconstrued as more dangerous than it would be if an onlooker were watching children who were from the dominant culture in this country. So I pledge to you that in this and future episodes, I will make my best attempt to consider not just how the sampling could impact the applicability of the results, but what are the implications of the results themselves for children and families of non-dominant cultures? I should also remind you that I use the language dominant and non-dominant cultures to indicate the power relationships between different cultures in the US, and also to acknowledge that the word minorities can be a misnomer when discussing children, since more than 50% of school-age children are now not white, so technically it's white children who are in the minority. So with that commitment in mind, when I started reading a paper that attempts to tease out family members' perceptions of storytelling by surveying students at a private university with a sample that was 79% Caucasian, I was struck by the language that was used in the survey questions because researchers don't always tell you the precise wording of their questions in the final paper that gets published participants were asked to indicate agreement with items like when my family tells stories, we are courteous and respectful to each other. And when my family engages in storytelling, I would describe the atmosphere as polite. And when my family tells a story, we usually agree on the details of the story. And finally, when my family engages in storytelling, the story usually has a definitive beginning, middle and end. I couldn't help but be reminded of Shirley Bryce Heath's important book, Ways with Words, which she wrote after she spent a lot of time in the early 1980s in a pair of poor communities in Appalachia, one with black residents that she called Tracton and the other with white residents that she called Roadville. I'll quote a pretty long paragraph from one of her subsequent papers in which she summarizes parts of her research. In contrast to the assertions of the bulk of studies of parents interacting with young children acquiring language, they did not simplify their talk to children or even feel the need to address them directly. And she's mentioning the Tracton residents here. They did not have special routines of question and answer displays or baby talk games, and they did not offer the labels for items in the environment to their children. Instead, they expected that children would learn to, quote, talk when they needed to, and to judge when and whom to give information, and to be, quote, wise and cautious about answering, quote, foolish questions. Their philosophy of, quote, what's done is done, seemed to keep them from asking children to recount verbally what they'd done or were currently doing, unless adults believed children had information adults needed. The display of knowledge through talking about what was done could invite ridicule or punishment unless offered as a poetic, clever, entertaining, and quasi-fictional narrative that could be jointly constructed by initiator and audience. As soon as they could toddle, boys became public objects of verbal teasing, and successful verbal retorts could command attention from spectators of several porches. They learned a string of alternative ways of expressing similar meanings, as well as alternative ways of performing the same utterance, always a well-formed short sentence with a variety of semantic values and context for interpretation. Adults and older children played different roles at different times with toddlers, who were expected to adapt, co-perform, and learn that roles did not rest in a single individual, but in widely distributed types of performances across the community. Now, you might recall the story that was told by a seven-year-old girl that I recounted in the second episode in this series on storytelling, and it's not hard to draw a line from the focus on the Tracton children's language development, where parents are not courteous, respectful, or polite towards children, and instead ridicule their children, which helps the children to develop snappy responses with multiple layers of meaning. Through Elle's story, she's the seven-year-old girl whose story I recounted about her dog that is virtually incomprehensible to white listeners to the much lower performance of black children than white children on standardized reading tests. It's not that the black children in traction had an inferior linguistic skill set to those of white children, but rather their skill set is different and does not necessarily align well with the skill set that is valued in schools, where children must be polite, take turns, and tell stories with a definitive beginning, middle, and end. The researchers who look at family storytelling implicitly assume that the way white families tell stories is the right way, and also that the model of a strong white family is the only model of a strong family. The researchers in this particular paper concluded, in part, that members of a conversation-oriented family consider each other's perspectives when they tell stories as a family, which is implied to be a good thing, while conformity orientation discourages family members from thinking about issues from multiple perspectives because they're taught that only the parent's perspective counts. There just seems to be no space at all on this spectrum of potential options for the ridiculing and punishment of children who tell about past events unless they're heavily fictionalized and generating a clever, insightful, quasi-fictional narrative that might not include perspective taking, but is instead more of a performance for community members beyond the nuclear family. The article's authors do acknowledge the homogeneity of their sample, but they don't make any mention of the bias present in their survey questions that may make the results completely inapplicable to anyone not raising their child as a member of the dominant culture. I'm sorry to say that this is just one particularly obvious bias in the literature on this topic and that members of non-dominant cultures should carefully consider whether the apparently desirable outcomes described in the literature that I'll discuss are appropriate goals for their families, although I acknowledge that, of course, there is a wide variety in the child-rearing goals of these families as well as the storytelling methods it's possible that some families of non-dominant cultures may be interested in helping their child to be successful among members of the dominant culture, for example, in school, in which case this information could still be useful, although I hope that in time the dominant culture might come to understand and value the communication patterns used by members of non-dominant cultures. Heading back towards our main track, I also want to mention the idea of being cautious about assigning stereotypes to family members through stories. There's a story about me when I forgot to put the chocolate chips in the chocolate chip cookies and I had to pull them out of the oven to mix the chips in and then put them back in the oven, which did not yield entirely satisfactory chocolate chip cookies. And there's another one about how I forgot the baking soda in banana bread, which essentially rendered it inedible. Thankfully, there are also lots of stories about delicious meals that I've cooked, or I might start to feel like I couldn't do anything right in the cooking department. Similarly, if we tag children with the complainer or the always messes things up label, they can actually start to live up to that label. And that's really not a trend we want to begin. So it's okay to use stories to recall funny things when someone messed up, but just be sure that the same person isn't always the butt of the joke on the same subject. And also be cautious of assigning only traditional gender roles, unless that's something you've decided to do both to yourself and to your child. One study found that mothers are more likely to tell stories focused on closeness, while father's stories are more often about independence and work. In our family, we often laugh about how it's Karis and I who do all the cooking, but whenever we go to our friend's house around the corner, it's the husband who's preparing dinner while the wife and I chit-chat. I want to be sure that she knows that while I enjoy cooking, not all women cook, and a lot of men cook too. Another thing that family stories can do is to help children resolve strong feelings about something traumatic that happened in the family. Some of the themes on this topic that researchers have observed include bereavement, breakups, miscarriage, cancer, and relational stressors. The child might want to relive the event over and over through story, perhaps in the same words every time, or perhaps exploring different aspects of the story. When we tell a story about a difficult experience, we have to consider multiple perspectives, which provides an opportunity for personal insight. Amazingly, research has shown that adults who write about a trauma they experienced had fewer physical problems and less psychological distress over time than people who didn't write or who only thought about their experiences. The same goes for people who had difficult breakups. The ability to write a coherent narrative about a breakup was positively associated with better emotional adjustment. It seems to me the process of creating a coherent description of what happened, labeling their feelings, and developing explanations for what happened helps people to develop insight, which then helps them to develop a sense of control over the experience. And two researchers from the University of Texas at Austin remind us that a story doesn't need to be considered a, quote, good story by an outside observer to result in psychological benefit. Rather, a good story is one that helps individuals to make meaning outside of their otherwise confusing experiences. So family members might recount together events using plot, character, and setting devices in a way that helps them to make sense of and give meaning to the events and to their family relationship. Storytelling can shift stressors from being things that just one family member experiences to a relational level activity. And as the story about the event is told together, the family experiences the joint accomplishment of telling the story. It allows us to reappraise the situation, establish a greater sense of control over our experiences, and bring about catharsis through emotional expression. And it's important to note that your contributions might make you feel like you're not doing very much. But agreeing, listening carefully, providing space for the other person to talk, using a positive tone when you do make relevant contributions that build on the story rather than interrupting, are all enormously important ways to help construct the story. The teller is primarily responsible for telling the story, but the collaborator helps the teller to shape, clarify, and organize their narrative. And the meaningful contributions the collaborator makes can change the way the storyteller thinks about the story or understands the experience. This process goes beyond just recounting the events to draw conclusions about the experience and its impact, significance, or effect on the family, or on particular family members. This theory of how people learn is very much in line with other theories we looked at in the episode from a while back on preschools that are inspired by the philosophy of learning used in Reggio Emilia, Italy, which itself is based on the work of a Russian psychologist called Lev Vygotsky. Vygotsky believed there's no such thing as a piece of knowledge that sits off by itself that we can grab hold of and learn, and that instead learning is a thing that is constructed between two people. This perspective taking that happens through social learning, along with the coherence we talked about a minute ago, emerged over and over again in the research as predictors of both individual and relational health. So the way we work with our child to tell a story together about an important event helps to develop a pattern for how that child copes with events in the future and also influences how both we as parents and they as children react, think, and feel within and about our relationships themselves. Stressful experiences can have a divisive effect on families and there's actually a field of therapy called narrative therapy that focuses on externalizing the problem to avoid putting blame on one or more family members and instead encourage the family members to work collectively against the problem. Researchers have also studied how families tell stories about how the family unit was formed, such as the parent's courtship and the child's birth or adoption. So-called adoption entrance narratives could actually predict differences in children's self-concept, with parents who emphasized the chosen child theme in their entrance narratives had children with higher rates of self-esteem and generalized trust. These stories also unite the family members with a common history and set of expectations about the world and how the family acts in and responds to things that happen in the world. Professor Junie Koenig-Kellas, and I hope I'm saying that right, of the University of Nebraska, has been particularly active in the field of family storytelling. And she notes that when stories are combined over time and generations, they become family legacies, which really made me think because I actually cannot think of a single story told in my family that would qualify as a legacy. I had three sets of grandparents, although they're all dead now, and while I know the basics of where most of them came from, I can't say any of them ever told me a story about their lives and what was important to them. I do remember my grandfather being very, very annoyed at me for making fun of spam, the canned meat product, because he had lived through the Second World War, and I guess it was a vital part of his diet at the time. And I remember that I had a great aunt, I think, who actually cut her own arm off with an axe, allegedly because she was angry about something, and probably the only reason I remember that is because both my sister and I were absolutely terrified of the hook that she wore where her hand should have been. But now I think about this for what is pretty much the first time, I wonder what I must have lost by not having sought out these stories. My maternal grandmother was German, so there must have been a story behind her emigration to England, although I have no idea what it was this makes me think I should reach out to my dad and to my mom's sister to help me understand more of our family history and stories before I lose another generation. Professor Kellis said that these legacy type of stories tend to communicate fairly simple messages like turners are stubborn or sons are important and may both enable and or constrain family identity and individual family members sense of themselves. We should recognize that people have some level of agency over their identity, which is to say they have some level of control over it, but identities are also shaped and constrained by both family and culture. We talked about this in our episode on siblings, when we discussed why siblings from Western cultures fight while siblings in many other cultures don't. Dr. Susan McHale gave us an example of children in many Latin American countries having very prescribed roles, so the oldest girl is the caretaker, the oldest boy can override the oldest girl, even if she's older than he is. Having these prescribed roles reduces the day-to-day arguing between siblings, but it does this by constraining the children's identities. Western children, of course, have very different constraints on their identities. The thou shalt go to college narrative is a particularly important one here that can shape whether the child ends up viewing themselves as a success or a failure. A child might choose to reject a legacy story. One participant who was interviewed in a study on this topic described that her family had a legacy of not confronting problems, a trait she recognized in herself and saw as negative but was trying to overcome. This process can create some cognitive dissonance for the individual, which is a fancy way of saying that it's easiest for all of our belief systems to align. It's easier if there's a family legacy of not confronting problems to just not confront problems, and that if you want to reject the family legacy, you're partially rejecting your family's belief system, which can be a difficult thing to do. The most enduring legacy narrative I've inherited is one of frugality, and I assume it came down through my grandparents to some extent, given that they lived through the war, although it's not something I recall being passed on through stories. We didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. We always had enough to eat, but we virtually always ate at home. I actually don't remember eating at a restaurant when we were in our hometown ever until I was at least 11 or 12. I don't recall being explicitly told that I must be frugal or that our family is thrifty, but I do remember some experiences that really shaped my worldview. When I was probably eight or nine, I was in my bedroom one day and I was cold. And a lot of houses in England are often heated by radiators, which circulate warm air through them, and they take a while to heat up. Ours were always set at number two out of six. So I thought, I'll just turn it up so I can be warmer. And I turned it up to number six. Well, it takes a while for radiators to warm up, and I forgot about it until later that night when my mom came into my room, and we both suddenly noticed it was really warm in my room, and she saw the radiator was still set at number six. I don't remember exactly what she said to me, but I do remember she came with me and she made me tell my dad about it. I don't think they punished me, but I still clearly remember the shame that I felt at having to tell my dad that I turned the radiator up. When I got older, my stepmother's standard response to the statement, I'm cold, was put more clothes on then. I think we rarely ran the heating in that house. Since then, I've studied forestry and environmental management and have embraced the narrative of environmental responsibility as much as I can, which fortunately fits well with the narrative of thriftiness. I have definitely experienced some cognitive dissonance in marrying a very American-American who sees it as his birthright to walk around in the house in a t-shirt while running the heating at 80 degrees, whereas I turn the heating off when I'm working from home and instead wear three layers of clothing and sit under a blanket. Karis is very into the let's read and find out science books at the moment, and she loves the book on reflexes. One of the reflexes described in that book is shivering. The boy in the story gets out of the bath and shouts, Mom, I'm cold! And Karis will now respond loudly with, Well, put more clothes on then! (laughs) We also talk a lot about not wasting things like water because we live in a place where there isn't a lot of water to go around and we have to make sure there's enough for everyone to use. And she actually won a prize from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission at a wildflower festival we went to a few weeks ago because she was able to state three ways in which we save water. So I'm very conscious that I'm passing this narrative onto her, but I'm trying to do it in a way that emphasizes a sense of responsibility and a need to share resources with others, rather than shaming her into doing things for reasons that she never fully understands. I'm hoping she will embrace the narrative of responsibility for her actions and for the well-being of others to the extent that she can reasonably impact it without this feeling like a negative constraining thing that she needs to try to reject or escape. So as we wrap up, I have two main questions to guide you in thinking more about this topic. The first one is that whether or not you're still in touch with your parents or whether or not anyone explicitly told you stories as a child, you probably internalize some kind of narratives about your identity and your place in a family unit from the people who raised you. So what are those narratives and how do those narratives fit with the way that you hope to raise your own child? And secondly, actually I guess this is a third question, if your child or your family has experienced a stressful event recently, is it possible that you could use storytelling to help them and even you and even your family to help process that event? If you've been lucky enough not to have experienced a stressful event lately, then please do tuck this episode away in the back of your mind for use in the future because stresses do get us all eventually and it could be a tool that's useful to you in the future. Thanks again for listening. You can find all the references for today's show at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash family storytelling.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.